Welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Justin Lee Miller. I am a social psychologist and research fellow at the Kinsey Institute and author of the book, Tell Me What You Want, The Science of Sexual Desire and How It Can Help You Improve Your Sex Life. Today's episode is all about the science of love. It only seemed appropriate to cover this topic since Valentine's Day is this month. Now, I know a lot of you have strong feelings about this holiday. Some people will really enjoy it and see it as an opportunity to make their partner feel appreciated or to rekindle passion in their relationship. At the same time, however, others feel like it's this high-stakes relationship test. I get it. But no matter how you feel about Valentine's Day, this episode is for you because we're going to be talking all about tips for maintaining happy and healthy relationships all year long, whether you're in a new relationship or you've been together for a long time. We're also going to talk about the difference between lust and love and how you can tell the two apart the next time you might be feeling a little confused. In addition, we'll be talking about how to make Valentine's Day work for you and how you can take the stress and pressure out of it so that you can enjoy this day and do something good for your relationship. My guest is Dr. Terry Orbuck, a distinguished professor at Oakland University and a research scientist at the University of Michigan's Institute for Social Research. She is an author, speaker, and therapist known widely in the media as the love doctor for giving practical, science-based relationship advice. Her latest book is called Secrets to Surviving Your Children's Love Relationships. I can't wait for this conversation, but before we dive in, if you're looking for a unique Valentine's Day gift idea, I have you covered. Check out Beducated, which is basically the Netflix for better sex. Their online courses can give you the boost in the bedroom you've been looking for. You can take these classes alone or with a partner. The choice is yours. But either way, your relationship will be better for it. A few of my favorite courses they offer are the Intimate Touch and Roadmap to Intimacy classes, both of which are designed to help you and your partner build a stronger connection. Try all of their courses today for free, and if you like what you see, you can get 70% off the yearly pass by using my last name, Laymiller, as the coupon code. It's just $7.99 per month after that, and the discount is locked in forever. Check the show notes for the link or visit beducated.com and be sure to use my last name to get your discount. All right, let's talk about love. Hi, Terry, and welcome to the Sex and Psychology Podcast. Hello, Justin. So wonderful to be here. I'm excited for our discussion. Well, thank you so much for joining me. You have been someone who is a source of professional inspiration for me for a long time because you've managed to strike that perfect balance between being a serious scientist and a public speaker and disseminator of knowledge, which is what I try to do. And I know it can be a tricky business, but you're fantastic at it. So I'm really excited to speak with you. Thank you. Now, before we dive in, I'd like to ask you to tell us a little bit about your professional backstory. So specifically, how did you come to be a relationship researcher in the first place? And how did you become known as the love doctor? Mm, such a good question, Justin. <laughs> I think I've always been interested in relationships and psychology. I'm a Midwestern gal born and raised in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I came from a very psychology and relationship household. My father's a psychiatrist, my mother's a therapist, my sister's a therapist, and my brother's in healthcare. So, <laughs> so it runs in the family. Right. It runs in the family. I don't know if it's in our genes or if it's just like that social upbringing. So, you know, as a child, we talked about relationships all the time, whether it be at dinner time or in the car or on vacations. And so I've always, as I said, wanted to do something with relationships. 
And so I, you know, became an academic first and a therapist and tried to merge and integrate those two lives or those two kinds of professional backgrounds. And then in about 2004, I realized that after having this wonderful long-term study funded by the National Institutes of Health, where I've been following the same 373 couples now for over 34 years now, I realized that nobody was reading what I was writing about except my colleagues like you and others, Justin, and that was wonderful. But I really wanted others to learn from all these great findings in this long-term study. And so I decided to coin myself as the love doctor. And ever since, I've been trying to translate the research findings into the public, much like you do as well. And again, relationships are my passion, both personally and professionally. And I really enjoy what I do. And I think when you enjoy what you do, it's easier to balance those many professional roles. It is so true. <laughs> and, you know, for me, it's hard to imagine something more interesting than studying and talking about sex and relationships every day. So it's, it's a fun job, I'll say. So I appreciate the, the work that you do both scientifically and as a disseminator of knowledge. I think it's so true that there's so much important information out there in the relationships literature, but there's so many people who just don't know anything about it because we tend to write it in these dense academic journal articles and they're locked behind paywalls at university libraries. So we need people like you who can take that research and really export it to the public because there's so much that we can learn and gain from that. So since you study love, let's begin by talking about what love is anyway. I mean, how do you know whether you're really in love with someone? Mm -hmm. You gave a great TED Talk on this a while back where you talked about the difference between lust and love. So can you give us the brief version of how do you tell the difference between these two things? When are you in lust and when are you in love? And, you know, so many people ask that question. And that's why I really did the TED Talk because people are trying to figure out, is it lust or is it love? The first thing I should say, though, is that you can have both in a relationship because people always say, I want lust and love in my relationship. And I think you can, and we can talk about that as well. But I think when you're drawn to someone based solely on passion and sexual desire, that's lust in general. Love, on the other hand, takes I think a long time to develop with a person. And I talked about in the TED talk that there are four signals or cues that you can ask yourself or look at your relationship in terms of whether or not then you are in lust or love. The first, Justin, is if you're in love, you speak in what we call we terms rather than I terms. And so when you're in love, you're intertwined with this other person or your lives are intertwined and you begin to think of yourself as a couple. And when you think of yourself as a couple, you have this couple identity, then you're much more likely to say we rather than I. So if somebody asked you what you did last weekend, for example, if you are in love, you might say, we went to the movies, we went out to dinner, we went for a walk, we stayed in and watched a romantic comedy, whatever you did. 
But I think if you're not in love or you're in lust, you would instead talk about in I terms. You would speak about, I went to the movies, I went to the restaurant, I went on a walk. And so think about how you speak and that can determine whether you're in lust or love. I think this is great. And I think that that first point is really true. You know, that when you become more kind of cognitively merged with another person, you you start talking in the collective we. And so that definitely is one of the big indicators of love. So what are the other three differentiators mm. there? The second is that when you're in love, you want this person to connect with the people that are important to you in your life. So you want to introduce this partner to your family, to your friends, and you want them not only to get to know you, your background, some of the funny things that have happened to you in the past, but also you want them to spend time and want to spend time with this person. So connection with the important people in your life signals love rather than lust. Third, you are much more likely, if you're in love, to disclose about your life. Share often confidential things, personal things about yourself, your dreams, your aspirations, your stressors, back to your childhood with this person. And you're less likely to do that if you are in lust, so to speak. And then finally, if you're in love, you're much more likely to be interdependent. And as we both know, Justin, that's a huge concept in the science of relationships. And what that means is that a change in you creates a change in this other person. So let's say you got a new job in a different country and you were thinking about moving you would go to this person because you knew or you know that taking that job would affect this person. Or if you had a medical scare or you got a new job, right? A promotion or an award, or even if you won the lottery, you would want to go to this person because of that interdependence. And that is not true if you're in lust. So, those four things, those four signals equals love rather than lust. So it sounds like when you're in love, it's really more about wanting to integrate that other person into your life and to really open up and share things about yourself. So if you're not sure whether it's lust or love, you need to look at to what degree do you really want to let that person in and share your life with them? Now, as the love doctor, I want to ask for your thoughts on the five love languages, because this is a super popular way of understanding love. And I hear people talk about it all the time, and I'm sure you probably do too. But something I think a lot of people don't realize is that the whole love languages concept wasn't based in research when it was developed. And despite not having scientific grounding, it has managed to become this huge cultural phenomenon. Now, I know a lot of people swear by it, but as a scientist, Terry, what do you think? Do you see value in the love languages concept? Mm, such a good question, Justin. And you took, the, you took the words right out of my mouth, really, <laughs> is that it is so popular. Everyone loves it. And I think everyone loves it, Justin, because you, there's a way, there's a survey, there's a quiz online <laughs> that you can take to understand your love language. But as you said, there's no science. There's no research to back 
any of this. And so what I often say, Justin, is that it gives you an understanding that there are differences between you and your partner, and it allows you to identify something about you and how you express or desire love. And you can share that with your partner. Your partner can do the same. And in that moment or in that understanding, that's so wonderful because you're able to take the perspective of your partner. So I think the utility and the benefit of the five love languages, Justin, is that we can understand our partner better and we can understand ourselves better. But you might not want to put too much stock into everything that is said there because like you said, there's not much if any research that's really there to support this whole conceptualization. And you know, I, I take a sort of similar perspective as you. You know, I think the value of the love languages idea is that it highlights the subjective nature of love and that it isn't just one thing. And I think that actually gets at a really important point, which is that two people can be in a relationship or more if you're polyamorous or consensually non-monogamous, but those people can understand love in drastically different ways. And so, for example, you might think that your partner doesn't love you because they're not showing it in a way that you're recognizing or acknowledging. And I've actually seen this happen a lot in relationships where you've got two partners who say they love each other deeply, but they drift apart because neither one of them feels loved. So I'm curious, do you have any advice for how do you make sure that your partner knows that you love them? Mm. Well, you know, I think that one of the things I found, Justin, when I've been following these couples over time, is that it's so important for two or more people in a relationship to share their expectations to one another. We think we understand our partner or we can mind read or they can read our minds, but instead, those expectations, those meanings, those understandings about love, about the expression of love, and what we think equals love is so important to communicate. As you said, love is a very complex phenomenon, and we all see it, understand it, and express it in different ways. So take the time to express those understandings with your partner. One of the things I found, Justin, following these couples over time is that frustration is the leading reason why relationships don't work. And frustration is the degree to which there is a gap or difference between what you think should happen in a relationship and then what actually does happen. And the greater difference, the more frustration. And frustration eats away at happiness in a relationship. And in my study, because it is long-term, it's over 34 years now, you can actually see when people are frustrated, when there's a difference between their should statements and their realities, that happiness declines significantly over time. And the way to lessen frustration or neutralize frustration is to do exactly what I mentioned, express what you think should happen in a relationship, see if it's realistic, see if your partner or partners can meet it, and then go from there. So 
it's true about love as well. Share those expectations, share those meanings so that frustration and disappointment don't eat away at happiness in your relationship. And I think that's actually true and great advice for any type of relationship. You know, I've done some research on friends with benefits, for example, and I don't have 34 years worth of data on friends with benefits, but I did do a one-year longitudinal study of people who had a friend with benefits. And one of the key things I found in terms of whether people still had a positive relationship at the end of that one-year period was whether they were on the same page at the beginning about what that relationship was and was not. And when people go in with these drastically different expectations, where, for example, somebody thinks, oh, a friend with benefits is an opportunity for love and romance, and it's naturally going to transition into this, but the other person is like, hey, this is a great opportunity for sex, no strings attached, you know, that's kind of a recipe for disaster. So, I think it's a really good idea in any relationship. Get on the same page with your partner. And, you know, when it comes to something like love, it's possible you might understand it in a very different way than your partner. And if the five love languages gives you a way to sort of negotiate that or talk about it, then great, use that. But I think it's also important to recognize that love and the way that we express it and the way that we want our partner to express it to us can also vary over the course of a relationship, right? And so you don't necessarily have just one permanent love language, right? You have to be sort of flexible and adaptable, right? Oh, people change. Absolutely. And that's okay. I think change is a good thing, Justin. And so when you change your love language, if that's what you want to work with, or you change your understanding of love, or you change your expectations about what should be in a relationship based on having a child, a new job, getting older, an illness, any of those life course things that happen to all of us, um, step back, do what we call a relationship tune-up you know, communicate and share again the changed expectations, the shared meanings, the shared understandings or changed understandings about love. Absolutely. We change over time. We change so much. And, you know, I'm someone, I've been in a relationship now for more than two decades. And, you know, the way that I wanted love to be expressed 20 some years ago was very different from how I want it to be expressed now, right? So in the early stages of the relationship, I'm like, you know, I want us to spend a lot of time together, right? And the more time that you want to spend with me, that's a better indicator of of love. And now I'm like, give me some personal space, right? <laughs> you know, So it's like sort of a different need because once you've been together for so long, like you change as a person and what you need, what you want, the way that you feel appreciated and valued, like that all varies. And I'm not saying, <laughs> just to be clear, I'm not complaining about my relationship. I'm just saying that people change. I change, my partner changes, and we've learned to adapt and figure out how to meet each other's needs at different stages of life. And I know that another 20 years from now, it's probably going to be totally different again. So you just have to be flexible and adaptable. Absolutely. I agree. And, and the same is true for me, Justin. I've been married to the same man for over oh, 29 years, 30 years in November. So absolutely, my needs and expectations have changed. And I think, again, the important thing is that that's a good thing. One of the other things I did in this long-term study is ask partners separately 
about their rules for marriage so that if they had an ideal relationship, what would their rules be for that ideal relationship? And what I found is that those rules change over time, and that's okay. The one thing that was interesting, though, Justin, is that the expectation or rule for trust was true for both partners, men and women, and all of my couples were heterosexual married couples that I followed over time. And in every year of the study, trust was the number one essential rule. After that, they changed, but trust became the number one ingredient for a happy, healthy, ideal relationship, which I found fascinating. Yeah. And it makes a lot of sense to me. But I think what you said is really important that, you know, you negotiate rules for your relationship at one point in time. And I think where people oftentimes go wrong in their relationships is that they never revisit those rules. And they, they just assume that whatever it was that you said at the beginning is going to be the rules that are going to govern your relationship for the next 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years. And as we've been talking about, people change, rules change, and it's okay for the rules to change in your relationship, but you have to be on the same page about that. So as a relationship researcher, Terry, I know that you know a lot about what makes for a good relationship. So let's talk about relationship tips. Now, I realize that different people need to know different things depending on where they are in their relationship journey. So let's start at the very beginning with people who haven't been together for very long. Something I see a lot of people struggle with at this stage is when to make their relationship official, right? When do you let other people know that you're more than just friends? So when is the right time to announce your relationship? Mm, such a good question. And the answer really is there is no good or right time. I really think it depends, Justin, on the two people involved and especially what you as an individual need and want and expect. So from my perspective, if you want to say I love you early in the relationship and you're okay about the response or that the response isn't reciprocated, then share those feelings early. I would caution people not to do it too early. And what I mean by too early is the first several dates because that can overwhelm somebody. It can frighten somebody. And that person is much more likely to flee, even if they like you. So look for the cues, right? Or signals that we talked about that this person wants you to connect with others, that this person is beginning to use we language, that this person is beginning to self-disclose as signals to say, aha, this is not too early. But after that, it's really all about, I think, what you feel comfortable with. And again, being okay with it not being reciprocated. And that's a big deal for a lot of my clients, right? As you know, Justin, I mean, they say, I love you. Nobody says it, or the person doesn't say it in return. And then they begin to regret what they said and what they did. And then they hide and they begin to retreat and it changes the relationship. So make sure that you're okay. But that person may not be, again, as we've been talking about, on the same page as you. Yeah, and <laughs> I see this a lot with people that, 
you know, it is very overwhelming, this idea of telling somebody else that you love them. And there is that fear of rejection. And I think there's a lot of insecurity that goes into this. And I know that, for example, when I was younger, I did not want to be the first person to say, I love you in a relationship because I, I got burned a couple of times with that, right? So I'm like, nope, I'm just going to wait. I'm going to let somebody else be the first one to say that. And I think you know, for me now, that would be very different because I was just a very insecure person at that point in my life. And I've developed a certain level of self-confidence that I just didn't have back then. So it would probably be a very different thing for me at this stage of life. So I wonder to what extent that might also vary over the course of time with individuals. But then there's also this sort of added pressure of it's not just telling your partner that you love them, but it's also making that relationship official and it's announcing it to the world. And then there suddenly becomes all of this social pressure and expectations for your relationship. And a lot of people feel like they're a failure if the relationship doesn't work out. And so I think that's why a lot of people are often hesitant to be Facebook official or whatever social media platform official it is that they're using because they're worried about other people judging them if the relationship doesn't work out. I'm curious if you have any thoughts on that about why do we take this so personally and feel like such a failure if the relationship doesn't work? Well, I don't like the words failure and success when we're talking about relationships, because I think that adds that pressure that you're talking about. And a relationship can be really good and it can be short term. A relationship cannot be so good and it's long term or it stays together. I mean, I think people stay in relationships for many different reasons, one of which is that they're happy and it's a healthy relationship, but there are other reasons for moral or ethical reasons. Once you've said like um, on Facebook or to friends that you are in a relationship where you have to stay or because of the social consequences of leaving, um, what would you do? What would people say? Uh, what would you lose in terms of money or a pet or a house or things that you bought together? And so I would encourage people to just think about happy, healthy relationships and not whether or not they stay or they don't stay. And again, I don't like those words, successful or failure of relationships, because it may be good not to stay in a relationship. And I think, again, when we're talking about social pressure, Justin, we're talking about those should statements. And we all have shoulds. We all walk around in our minds with those, this should be here or he or she should do this. And it comes from our past. It comes from our present as well. But I would encourage people as much as possible to let go of those should statements and, and be your genuine selves in relationships and try to work on just having happy, healthy relationships. And again, as we talked about at the beginning, in all our relationships, not just our romantic relationships, but our friendships and our family relationships and our work relationships as well. And so that's how I think about social pressures, social norms, expectations, being official 
and the words success and failure. I want to put those over on the table. <laughs> I think you make so many great points there. And it reminds me of how back when I was in graduate school, first learning about the science of relationships, this term relationship failure was often referenced in academic journal articles, and it was used sort of synonymously with breakup. And I didn't really give it much thought at the time, but I've come to see it the same way that you do, that you know we shouldn't look at this as a failure because sometimes a relationship just doesn't work out and that's okay. And the best thing for the partners involved is to move on. And just because a relationship is, say, short doesn't mean that it didn't have any meaning. You know, sometimes the shortest relationships we have are amongst the most meaningful. And I think we all know a lot of people who have been in really long-term relationships. You know, maybe in some cases you've seen your parents, your grandparents, where they've been together forever, but they're profoundly unhappy, but they feel like they have to stay and that they don't have any other options. And was that good for everyone involved? Maybe not. And maybe there would have been other opportunities to pursue happiness if they would have ended the relationship. So I think we we should absolutely step back and revisit these ideas. And we really need to be mindful of why are we staying in a relationship? And when you feel all of that social pressure to stay and you're worried about looking like a failure, you know, that is where I think we often run wrong and we deprive ourselves of opportunities for so much relationship happiness. Now, I wanted to go back to something you said earlier about, you know, you don't want to come on too strong in a relationship, right? Maybe you don't want to say I love you on the first date. And I actually conducted some research recently where I asked people about their relationship deal breakers and saying I love you on the first date is a pretty big deal breaker for a lot of people, right? Because it's moving a little bit too quickly or maybe way too quickly for some people. So yeah, you need to be mindful of sort of when you're going to to say this to another person. But something I'm thinking about here, and I want to get your opinion on it, Terry, is do you believe in the idea of love at first sight? Do you think people can really fall in love instantaneously? Mm, Such a good question. And I get it all the time. I would have to say no. I do not believe in love at first sight. I think there can be attraction. I think there can be lust. But like we talked about at the beginning, Justin, I think love takes time to develop. And so, you know, there are scientists who think it happens in the first seven seconds or seven (laughs) minutes, but I'm not one of those researchers or scientists. I think love develops over time. And as we discuss, it's an intertwining and interdependency that occurs between two people. I also agree with you that you should not say I love you on the first date. And I also think that there is another thing that you shouldn't do on the first date that I hear a lot of people talk about, and that is disclose everything about yourself on that first date. I think there's a myth out there that you should tell everything about yourself to this person so they really know you and they know everything about you. But again, I think it overwhelms people. It's like you read the whole book in an hour rather than share one chapter at a time with this person. I think about if I'm on an airplane and I'm sitting down next to somebody, if they tell me my whole life, their whole life story on that plane, you know, how do I feel? I want to flee. I want to (laughs) leave the airplane. And if people could just think about that image 
that's what you should not do then on the first date. <laughs> that is a very good analogy, and I love it. Now, we have much more to discuss, including tips for maintaining healthy long-term relationships and how to enjoy a low-stress Valentine's Day. But first, a quick break for word from our sponsors. Studies show that as many as one in three men say they don't last as long in bed as they'd like to. Fortunately, there's a solution for this, and it's called Promescent. Promescent is a topical spray that boosts sexual stamina through temporary desensitization. Promescent is customizable for your body, and when used as directed, it won't transfer to your partner. Use it alone or in combination with other techniques for faster, more reliable results. Check it out, and you'll see why thousands of physicians and sexual health providers recommend it. Promescent offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, free shipping on orders over $10, and discreet shipping to guarantee privacy. Learn more and place an order at promescent.com. That's P-R-O-M-E-S-C-E-N-T dot com. Looking to become a certified sex educator, counselor, or therapist? Check out the Modern Sex Therapy Institutes. MSTI offers certifications in sex therapy, LGBTQIA affirmative therapy, alternative relationships, and more, as well as a PhD program in clinical sexology. All programs can be completed 100% online and are flexible and customizable to meet the needs and schedules of even the busiest participants. You can take live courses the third weekend of each month and choose from over 300 archived workshops taught by renowned experts in the field. For more information, visit ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. That's ModernSexTherapyInstitutes.com. And we're back. Before the break, we were talking about relationship tips, and we started with tips for newer relationships and sort of how you're navigating when you say I love you in a relationship and so forth. So let's talk about people who have been together for a bit longer. So for an intermediate relationship, one of the challenges is waning passion, right? So in the very early stages of a relationship, you have that lust, you know, everything is very intense. And we know that the typical time course for passion in a relationship is, you know, six months to two years, approximately, give or take some time. And that's the average. There's always individual variability, but passion does tend to decline over time. So Terry, how do you keep the passion going in a relationship? How do you revive the spark? Well, first, you are absolutely right. There's so much research that indicates that passion does decline over time in a relationship. And I think that there are three big strategies that you can implement in order to reignite that spark, that passion, that fire. And they're the three things that created the passion at the beginning. The first, Justin, is to do new and novel activities with your partner. And so anything that is new that you haven't done with your partner, and it doesn't have to be anything big or drastic, a new restaurant, a new travel vacation spot, a new class that you sign up online, a virtual class with your partner can reignite the passion. Newness created the passion at the beginning, and when newness declined, so did also the passion. So reignite passion by doing something new and novel. Second, you want to use the element of surprise. And again, at the beginning of your relationship, everything was really surprising. You learn new and different information about your partner, about their childhood, about their dreams and goals that you were similar, that your values were compatible. So again, 
in order to reignite the passion, use that element of surprise or mystery or fantasy as well. And then finally, my favorite, and I'm sure it's your favorite too, you want to do arousal-producing activities with your partner. And this doesn't have to be sexual activities. Anything that creates that adrenaline rush, if you do exercise with your partner, if you go to a scary movie, go on a roller coaster ride, or even go to a comedy club, and you have that big laughter that creates that adrenaline rush within your body, as long as you're doing it with your partner, that adrenaline or arousal will get transferred to your partner and your relationship. So I think those are three very small, easy to implement ways to reignite the passion and fire in your relationship. And I think that's all fantastic, spot on, science-backed advice. And, you know, it's something that does in a lot of ways seem very intuitive, but a lot of people aren't doing it, you know, because a lot of people, once they have been in a relationship for a while, they, they fall into these routines and they just maybe sit around and watch TV together every night. And you need to go out and do those arousing sorts of activities, get some physical activity together. It could also be dancing or something, you know, anything where you're just moving. And that element of novelty, again, it, it could be sexual or non-sexual. Any way you're adding new things into the mix is usually good. Now, you do have to recognize that when you try new things, sometimes you're not going to like it, right? <laughs> because, you right. know, it, it's not always going to be a positive experience. And that's okay, you know, but that's part of the fun of trying new things is that you don't really know what to expect. And that's where, you know, that element of surprise comes in a little bit as well. Because when you try something new, sometimes it's going to be surprisingly good. Other times it's going to be surprisingly bad. But on balance, exactly. you're probably going to exactly. have more positive experiences. Right. And you know, what you said about falling into a routine, you know, following these couples over time, Justin, boredom, what I found is that boredom eats away at happiness. And a routine is great. A rut is even great. And I found that if you're in that rut for about a year and a half to two years, it's okay because we like predictability. But when it becomes even longer, that's when boredom sets in. That's when you aren't surprised that there isn't newness and excitement. And so make sure that you know that we all fall into those routines or patterns, and that's okay, but don't keep it too long. And that can be in your relationship life, that can be in your work life, your sexual life, all kinds of aspects of your life. Make sure that you do those new, different, surprising, and arousal-producing activities. Yeah. So every year and a half, change up the days of the week you're having sex, exactly. start going to a new restaurant, put it on your calendar right now, one year and one and a half years out. So we talked about new relationships, intermediate relationships. Let's talk about really long-term relationships. So, you know, Terry, between you and me, we have over a half century of experience in long-term relationships. Mm -hmm. So we, we might be know a thing or two about this from, from personal experience. But I, I think one of the issues that a lot of people encounter is that once you've been together so long, 
you can actually become too close, you know, to the point where two people literally become one. And something I've seen a lot in the infidelity literature is that one of the big reasons people cheat is because they say they lost themselves in the relationship. They lost that sense of personal identity and individuality. And as we discussed a little bit earlier, you know, we tend to think that closeness is a good thing in a relationship, right? Where you start talking in terms of the, the collective we instead of in terms of I and me and mine, but it is possible to be too close, right? So how can you prevent that from becoming a problem and maintain your individuality in a relationship? Great question. And we talked about how those we statements and that mutuality is so very important, but you don't want to lose yourself. You still want eyes along with we's. And so you don't want to become enmeshed is really the term. And I think one of the things that I found following these couples in this long-term research study, Justin, is that space, time for self, and own interests is still a predictor of happy, healthy relationships over time. And that when you don't have time for self, interests, and friends on your own, that can lead to unhappiness and divorce in my study over time. And so I encourage people all the time to ask for space, ask for things that you want to do on your own. And I know that's really difficult because you feel as if your partner is going to be offended or get defensive. But I always encourage people to use their I statements. First, actually, I encourage people to give affirmation. So tell your partner they're wonderful, they're great, you enjoy spending time with them. So that positive statement, those positive compliments, and then follow up with, I would love to go out with my friend Susan here for her birthday, or I really want to finish my book tonight. Can I go in the bedroom and read for two hours? And then you want to follow up with, I'll come back afterwards, and I can't wait to tell you all about it, right? So we're including our partner, even though we're taking time for self. And when we do that, our partner hears it differently. We're not as likely to feel guilty when we actually take the time for self or go out with a friend. And it leads to a happy, healthy relationship over time. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And it is so important to have that way of maintaining some individuality in your relationship, some ability to still pursue your own interests and hobbies, you know, because a lot of people have to give up their hobbies in a relationship or they feel like they have to because their partner, let's say, isn't into tennis, but you really are. So it's important to find ways where you can kind of have those outlets. And actually, as I've talked about on previous podcasts, this is a big part of the reason why a lot of people are drawn to polyamory and consensual non-monogamy is that you can have different partners with whom you meet different needs. And so for some people, that's an avenue for, for doing that. 
But if you want to maintain monogamy, you still have to find some way to have that individuality. So as a practical example, there was a kickball league that started in our local area. And I was like, that sounds like fun. And my partner thought it sounded like fun too. But I'm like, let's sign up, but be on different teams, right? Mm. And, you know, part of the way I framed this was that, you know, we're going to make twice as many friends, right? If we're on different teams, but then also we're not going to fight and argue <laughs> with each other because... You know, I don't want you telling me what to do on this team, right? So it's it's sort of, I think it makes it a more fun, relaxed atmosphere. We're building a bigger social network. We're both having fun, but we don't have to do it together. And then we can come back at the end and talk about it with one another. And it's I sort of I love this, that, Justin. That's yeah. such a great suggestion. And I think people need to understand that when that happens, whether on separate teams or somebody does the kickball league and the other person doesn't, that that person can bring new information, people, activities into the relationship, which actually reignites passion again. Yep. Now, the only tricky thing with us being on different teams is that sometimes our teams have to play each other. <laughs> so <laughs> then things get a little competitive. <gasps> I agree. My husband and I used to play tennis early in our relationship, and then we stopped and we haven't played tennis with each other or against each other, either way, for the last probably 25 years, because we've realized that that's probably not the best thing. <laughs> that competition isn't good for our relationship. So that's okay, too. <laughs> yeah. And so maybe if competition is not good in your relationship, then take Terry's advice. One of you joins the kickball league, somebody joins the volleyball league, something, but where you've got your own interest that you're pursuing, and then you can come back and share that with the other person. So you get that arousal, that novelty, and then there's also the self-disclosure afterwards. You can also attend the other person's things, cheer them on. You know, it, And I should also say, these don't have to be sporting activities. It can be anything. It's just pursuing your interests. So, Terry, with Valentine's Day upon us this month, let's talk a little bit about that. Now, as I mentioned at the top of the show, a lot of people have this love-hate relationship with Valentine's Day, mm -hmm. right? On the one hand, it's romantic, and you know, many of us have very positive memories of previous Valentine's Days. But on the other hand, it can feel like a nightmare because there's all this stress and pressure, and it feels like this big relationship test that you have to pass, or it feels like you have to do something big and grand and then post it on social media because if you don't do that, then other people are going to think that your relationship isn't good, right? So with all of the stress and pressure and expectation, how can we take all of that shit out of the equation and, you know, <laughs> dial it down and make Valentine's Day feel like fun instead of work? That's a, such a great point. <laughs> um, first, I just want to acknowledge that it can be really stressful. And as a relationship expert as well, I see that, I hear that, and I feel that as well. I think first, you want to remember that it's all about the small things. It's not about the large grandiose gestures. And there is science in my study to support that. It was not the big things that kept people together, but the small, consistent, heartfelt things that really mattered to partners. So remember that there is research to show that it's the small things, not the big things that matter. And when you take that into account, it's really not about your pocketbook or the amount of money that you spend. And that's really an important theme 
it is not about the amount of money that you spend, but the time and the, the, the personal sort of gesture that really matters. And it's okay, by the way, to share your expectations with your partner. In fact, again, I highly encourage it so you're on the same page. So that one partner isn't expecting gifts and the other partner is, we're not doing gifts, we're just gonna share that we love each other in a car. And so share your expectation, it's okay. It doesn't mean that it's any less romantic. It doesn't have to be surprising. And in fact, when we meet our partner's expectations, it's even better. The third thing I wanna say is that I think the best things to do on Valentine's Day is to listen to our partner. So if you're thinking of a gift, if you're thinking of what to do, just step back for a few moments and listen to your partner. What are they saying? What do they need? What do they want? It may be just a day of, you know, hiding in the closet or taking a bath and allowing them to do that is a wonderful Valentine's Day gesture or gift. So take a step back and just listen. I encourage people, I love Valentine's Day, by the way, Justin, and you're probably not surprised about that because I think it's a day to recognize and appreciate all the important people in our lives, not just our romantic partners, but our friends. Our, I, I recognize my children, my parents, all the people that really mean the world to you who are special and you want to appreciate them. And that may be an email. It may be sending a card. It may just be getting on the phone and saying, I care about you. Thank you for being in my life. And so don't let the day go by without doing just one of those small gestures to the important people in our lives. And I can also say that there is research in my study to support that affirmation, the degree to which you make someone feel special is the number one predictor of happiness in relationships of all kinds. So waking up and just saying, I love you, you're special, you make my life exciting, or I love you more now than when I first met you, or any of those possibilities. And again, you don't have to do it through words. You can also do it through actions. But one small gesture will really impact all of your relationships on Valentine's Day. I think that's great advice. And you hit on a lot of the things that I would say about this. And I think just one other thing I would add is that I think it's helpful to reframe the way that you think about Valentine's Day. And instead of looking at it as this obligation where it's something you have to do, or there are all these things that you should do, look at it as an opportunity. And it can be an opportunity to do whatever it is that you want that is going to feel good for you and your relationship and take it to a better place. And it can be the smallest thing. It doesn't have to be this huge grand gesture. It's about meeting your needs and and not trying to conform to some societal expectations. So do that cognitive reframe and think about doing it on your own terms, communicate with your partner so that everybody's getting what they want out of that. 
Now, I know we're running short on time, but I know you have a new book out soon, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about it. So your latest book is all about tips for parents who want to help their kids have happier and healthier relationships. And I think this is such an important topic because kids don't really get relationship education. I mean, I know on previous podcasts, I've talked about how they don't get sex education, but they're not getting relationship education either. And, you know, if I could make three big changes to, you know, school curricula, they would be, let's teach people more about sex, relationships, and money, because those are like the three biggest things in life that we don't learn anything about, where things can just go drastically wrong. So tell us a little bit, Terry, about sort of what parents can do to help their kids develop stronger, healthier relationships. Mm-hmm. Well, I love that, by the way. First, I have to say, Justin, <laughs> more education about sex, relationships, and money, spot on. Totally agree with you. But my new book, Secrets to Surviving Your Children's Love Relationships, is all about, as you said, how parents can help their children have happy, healthy relationships because good relationships for your children, if you're a parent, start with you. And the book is all about how you can model specific things in your own relationship, love relationships, so that your children observe and watch you and learn. And then what are some discussions that are really important to have with your child or children so that they can know what is a good relationship, a happy, healthy one, and what is a not-so-good relationship? For example, as I mentioned before, affirmation or the degree to which you make your partner feel special is the number one predictor in my study of happy, healthy, long-term relationships. So it's very important for parents first to model affirmation, not only with their love partner, but all people. Even the person behind the you know, service counter or at Starbucks or at a restaurant and with their friends, but especially with their children as well. So affirm your child. Talk to them about how special and unique and loving that child is so that they can practice hearing it. And when we, we know science shows that when you hear it a lot, you're also more likely to give it. And then sit down with your children and have those conversations. What is affirmation? Why is it important? You can do it through words or actions. And then if they're in a love relationship, in the book I talk about how you can have discussions with your children about their love relationships. I provide quizzes, scripts, handouts, exercises. And again, you might not sit down and do these with your child, but it gives you the tools and a big toolbox to say, what am I going to take out to either talk to my child or help my child have happy, healthy relationships? I love the whole concept behind this book because people just don't learn anything about relationships and how to navigate them. And, you know, the only people who really tend to get that experience are those who go to college and then are fortunate enough to take a course in intimate relationships and they can learn about the science and research. But other than that, it's kind of like up to you to figure it all out on your own. And I think you make such an important point that if you don't have healthy 
relationship skills modeled for you, it's going to be hard for you to know whether you're in a good relationship or not, right? And so it's in the interest of protecting your kids and helping to ensure their future health and happiness to model these healthy relationship skills for them. So thank you so much for writing this book. And I think it will be really useful uh, to a lot of my listeners. Now, last question, love doctor. What is your single favorite piece of relationship advice that you've learned based on all of your years of research? I know it's a big question. <laughs> it's a big question. And, you know, one wants to think about that for a second, but because I have to answer quickly, Justin, I would say that it is to sweat the small stuff in relationships. And I know when listeners hear that, they're going to say, what? I thought I'm not supposed to sweat the small stuff. But what I found in my long-term study following these couples is that happy couples, happy, healthy couples sweat the small stuff because if they don't, if they don't address the little things like the dishwasher or the toilet paper or how that person or partner rolls the toothpaste tube, right, that becomes bigger and bigger over time. And what was easier to unpack and deal with and address when it is small becomes really hard to unpack over time. So my advice is sweat the small stuff, address the little things. And of course, you want to communicate them in a good way with I statements and at the right point in time. But again, sweat the small stuff in your relationships. I think that's great advice. And it's making me think about how there is only one correct way to hang the toilet paper. And, <laughs> but you need to tell your partner that in a nice, polite way. <laughs> exactly. Here's what I think is the best way. <laughs> well, thank you so much for this amazing conversation, Terry. It was a pleasure to have you here. Can you please tell my listeners where they can go to learn more about you and your work and get a copy of your new book? Thank you so much, Justin, for having me. What a great discussion. And it's been a pleasure for me as well. If listeners want more information about me, my website is Dr. Terry, the love doctor, all one word, Dr. Terry, the love And that's my website. Uh, my book is also up on my website. And the new book, Secrets to Surviving Your Children's Love Relationships, March 1st pre-order on Amazon. Well, thank you so much for your time, Terry. I really appreciate having you here. Also, thank you to my listeners. To keep up with new episodes of this podcast, visit my website, Sex and Psychology at sexandpsychology.com or subscribe on your favorite platform where I hope you'll take a moment to rate and review the show. You can also follow me on social media for daily sex research updates. I'm on Twitter at Justin Laymiller and Instagram at Justin J. Laymiller. Also, be sure to check out my book, Tell Me What You Want. Thanks again for listening. Until next time.